Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to The Crux, and I'm glad to be here at Boston University with uh, my colleague, Gary Sheffer. In the news, uh, it's been interesting. You know, we we are just now seeing uh, Ronan Farrow's uh, new book come out, Catch and Kill. Um, it, it, it actually sold out mm-hmm. before the actual publication date yes. of October 15th on most sites. I, I imagine there were a few people who had sleepless nights as they waited for <laughs> I, I this bet. book to come yeah. out. So for the uninitiated or who haven't seen the, the, the mega media attention to this book, it, it's about Harvey Weinstein's sexual escapades and uh, abuse of, of many women. And as Farrow claims in, in his book, that NBC News shot down or shut down his own original story. Mm-hmm. You know, while he was doing his show, he had yeah. a show on MSNBC at the time. Uh, even though several of the accusers had agreed to go on the record with him, and of course that's now being challenged mm-hmm. by NBC and, and its lawyers. What's with this? Yeah. Well, look, we know, and to go back to the title of the book, that catch and kill happens, yeah. right? And But you associate it more with National Enquirer kind of publications, mm-hmm. which has admitted that they mm-hmm. caught and killed some of President Trump's, um, some stories on P- President Trump, but you certainly don't expect it out of a great news organization, and I think they are, like NBC News. Yeah. That yeah. Uh, Now, NBC says... Right. Well, and I, and I should be more explicit. I mean, Farrow is essentially saying that his work got spiked. Yes. And it got spiked because Harvey had information about Lauer. Right. Yeah, so he had this information on Matt Lauer about Matt Lauer's affairs and sexual escapades. From a Me Too standpoint. From a Me Too standpoint, and that he was going to let that stuff fly if they let Pharaoh's story go. Yeah. So to answer your question, to get back to it, I don't know what to think of it other than to be completely disappointed if that's the way it happened. At GE, of course, we owned NBC mm-hmm. um, for many years, from 86 uh, right through 2009, I believe. Uh, we were the majority owners, 2010, that period. And I always found the the NBC News executives to be real. You know, news was their life. Mm-hmm. It was, and however, I do know that the competition for talent and the protection of talent in particularly television news mm-hmm. is intense. Yeah. And both from a contractual standpoint, from a money standpoint, you see how much they make. And when you have somebody who's really good and very popular at what they do, like Matt Lauer, which he was, mm-hmm. looking back, it's not hard to imagine wanting to protect him in some way. I don't mm-hmm. know if it happened, Yeah, but it's that intense competition for talent and for ratings among news organizations in television that sometimes skews judgment. Whether it happened here, I don't know. Uh, in retrospect and looking back at some of the things you've read about uh, Weinstein and Lauer, etc., it certainly seems possible. At least plausible. It, it plausible, yeah. Yeah. It, it, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so 
Uh, that's what I have to say. And, and uh, it's unfortunate in, in the sense that you know, this is happening at a time where lots of news organizations are being, you know, called into question. Right. You know, by lots of parties. And, yeah. And, and usually illegitimately so. Right. Right. Because somebody doesn't like a story right. and they want to point the finger at a news organization. Correct. Uh, and, and look, our guest today is going to talk a lot about values. Yeah. You know, in every instance, if you're not falling back on your values, was one of these things happen. If that's not your guide, your north star, in trying to decide what to do, then you're going to be lost. Yeah. If you're letting other things guide you, I always remember speaking of NBC, and so I'll give them credit here. Um, this is a long time ago, but it was involved MSNBC um, when Imus said the bad oh, things, yeah, yeah, said yeah. the bad things about the Rutgers, I believe it was, basketball team, yeah. made a very derogatory statement about Nothing that, that our president wouldn't say. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but at that time, you know, I'd have to yeah. say, there wasn't much going on on MSNBC from a rating standpoint. Imus was a big deal. Yeah. And they got rid of them because of those comments. Right. So, you know, uh, I've seen it. Uh, work well where yeah. they relied on their values. And I always remember the conversation that Jeff Zucker was head of NBC at the time and Jeff Immelt had, which is how do we explain this to our African-American employees yeah. if we allow this guy to continue to appear on our network? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to go from talking values to talking value. Yep. Um, you know, g- California State Legislature yeah. passed this uh, Fair Pay to Play Act. Yeah. Um, and the, the governor has signed it, um, and uh, you know it's it, it's like in your face N- NCAA, yeah. uh, and is essentially saying that collegiate athletes yeah. uh, should uh, be allowed to market themselves, mm-hmm. should be allowed to have agents, should allow to get paid for their likeness on these you know various mm-hmm. games and whatnot. Um, now, what's also interesting is the, you know, the jumble this is yeah. going to create in collegiate sports, because I don't know what it means even for like the Pac-10, where not all the teams are California teams. Mm-hmm. And what does the NCAA do mm-hmm. to these schools that the law says that they can't sure. o- obey the NCAA? They have to obey this new rule or this new law. So do you obey the law and then disobey the rules? And then does NCAA sanction you and your school from participation, you know, in yes. you know, any of the championship? You will. And look, a previous guest on the, on the Crux, Joe Nocera, yeah. has written a lot about oh, yeah. the NCAA and, in oh, fact, yeah. written, written a book. And I completely agree with him. I, I, I do think... This is a step in the right direction. Now, how you implement how you, it? <laughs> how you implement it? I have no idea. But these athletes create millions, billions of dollars in value for these institutions, mm-hmm. um, and some of them end up. You know, I, I, who was the Duke b- basketball player whose sneaker blew out last year? Zion Williamson, yeah. right? So the guy, he his, his Nike blows out. He twists his knee. He's going to be the number one pick in the NBA. He's put it all at risk for Duke, for mm-hmm. the greater good of Duke, and they're benefiting from it. And up, up until that point, he's getting nothing. So I do think there has to be some kind of way to compensate these mega stars at the collegiate level. So there's that side of it. So there are no more student athletes. Well, so I, I think there has to be some tiering of this, Mike, uh-huh, or something uh-huh. that's a sensible 
um, a sensible resolution to it because they are creating value and they're not sharing right. it. Now, Zion gets a free education at Duke. That's so. I'm That's not always saying, been the argument. Right, right. The other side of this is that the NCAA forces these institutions to contort themselves to try to live up to the letter and spirit of these rules about not having, not taking a $20 bill from somebody so you can go to McDonald's and get a hamburger. All of this stuff. Now, look, I I, I think the, the NCAA regulations have created this um, compliance minefield yeah. that's easy to, you know, get your foot blown off in. And I I think for the sport and I think for these young people, I think there has to be a better solution than um, what we have today. And it has to start with the recognition that these, particularly in basketball. Well, when you look at, I mean, even the contracts for the coaches, right? right. In the Uh, mega millions. You know, Rick Pitino, who, you know, from an integrity standpoint, doesn't have the greatest record. Millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars over his career, I'm sure. Just in basketball, you know, sneaker and gear contracts. All these endorsements. Right. Yeah. And uh, so, anyway, I... I, I, It's a tough balancing act. Because the other side of it is, you know, some of these schools also have walk-on athletes. Yes. I mean, they're not they're not the predominant players, <laughs> right? So, so how do you, how do you create that scale? Yeah. Um, so, so it's challenging. It wasn't my problem. I was not even at the Rudy <laughs> level, Mike. I, you know, forget it. Well, the, you know, one of the things that used to upset me. So, I played high school football at a yeah. pretty high level. My, yeah. my high school team went to the state championship two years in a uh-huh. row. We lost two years in a row, but we went there. Uh, but I had a number of players that I played with that went on and played yeah. college ball. But at the time, they would get injured, and then they would lose their scholarship. Lose the scholarship. And that would be the only reason they went to those schools to begin with. Right. So I do think that there's got to be some yeah, greater well, balancing here. We're sitting here at Boston University, and, and given the Varsity Blue scandal and all of this yeah. discussion, the college admission process probably needs to be disintermediated in a number of ways. Yeah. Well, and, and, and staying with sort of our, our, our sports theme, uh, you had brought up. Uh, in we need like early... nicknames for each other, like we're on a sports talk radio know, or something, know. you know. Uh, but anyway, you know, it's you brought up the issue about the NBA yeah. and, and oh, China. Goodness. And and it only got more complicated yeah. over the past week. So 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 let me sort of go through <laughs> the order here. First, you had uh, uh, Houston Rockets, uh, Daryl Morey, an executive with with the club. There, uh, he set off kind of a firestone with a with a tweet that, that said, you know, fight for freedom, stand with Hong mm-hmm. Kong. Uh, that triggered actually a backlash from the NBA mm-hmm. initially, where the NBA offices in, in New York City put out a statement that essentially said Maury's views have deeply offended many mm-hmm. of our friends and fans in China, uh, which is regrettable. Uh, and then to add on to that, the CCO for the NBA, Mike Bass, uh, said while Daryl has made it clear that his tweet does not represent the Rockets or the NBA, the values of the league support individuals educating themselves mm-hmm. and sharing their views on matters important to them. Now, one of the things that the NBA actually did with this is they actually got Democrats and Republicans together to in agree. Washington. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then you had uh, the Senate Republican Rick Scott. 
uh, he put out a message that says it's clear that the NBA is more interested in money than mm-hmm. human rights. Uh, and then Beto O'Rourke, who's running for president, former Democrat. Con- mm-hmm. Democrat, former congressman from Texas, uh, said, you know, it's an embarrassment in terms of what the, what the NBA did. Then you had this past week kind of Adam Silver kind of trying to walk this back a little mm-hmm. bit. And just as he's walking it back, you have LeBron James. James, and then Stephen A. Smith of yeah, ESPN yeah. Uh, out there talking about, you know, the craziness that uh, or, you know, and it's like James himself, I quote, he says, we all do have freedom of speech, but at times there are ramifications for the negative uh, that can occur from yeah. that. Um, so here, well, that's true. Yeah, but, you know, here's a guy who's making mega millions and is sort of getting advantaged by the current situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I can't imagine that if he were given a choice himself about freedom of speech, that he wouldn't opt for freedom of speech. He certainly Uh, exercises it regularly. Right. And then... You know, and then I kind of look forward, you know, it's like uh, there's also news this in, in, in the same sort of cycle mm-hmm. since we lasted this program where there was a fan that showed up at a Sixers game. And the Sixers were actually playing in Philadelphia in the same arena that they play all their yeah. regular season games. And the fan had a sign. And it's this, the sign said, Free Hong Kong, because yeah. the team was playing right, right, right. a, a it, team from China. China, yeah. And, 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 and during one of the breaks, the fan also began chanting, Free Hong Kong, Free Hong Kong. Yeah. They took him out of the arena. Right, right. That, you know, they found a fan objectionable in Philly for saying free Hong Kong. Philadelphia Freedom, I well, think, was know, a song. Uh, well, well and, and then, on, <laughs> yeah, but, but on top of that, you know, Philly fans are used to booing their own oh, team. brutal. You know, brutal. they've thrown snowballs at Santa Claus. <laughs> I mean, and they're going to take a guy out for, right. for, for exercising his yeah. freedom of speech in Philly? Well, of all the, the major league sports— the last league I would have expected to step in it on something like Absolutely. this was the NBA. Yeah. You know, the woke, I'm using air quotes, NBA, right. which allows its players a lot of freedom right. on, on social media. In fact, I think it's been a good, healthy. Very good. Well-run league. Silver's a smart guy. and In fact, they've averted some of the challenges that we've seen in the NFL as a consequence. That's right. That's right. And so I've been surprised by it. Um but look, you know, again, our, our guest today is going to talk about some of the challenges of companies that are American or mm-hmm. leagues in this case that are American and the, the you know, the contradictory nature of, of wanting to globalize those businesses in some cases when it comes to values, human rights, uh, you name it. And um, the NBA and the, the Rockets themselves because of um, was uh, uh, Yao Ming. Yao Ming, really? Right. I mean, fueled the interest in China for for exactly. American basketball. Wildly popular. And, boy, the Chinese reacted without hesitation. Mm-hmm. Um, they reacted strongly mm-hmm. to this tweet from the guy from the Houston Rockets, the general manager. And so all good to that point, I think. Yeah, yeah. The bad part has been watching Adam Silver uh, and the rest of the league and now LeBron James sort of whinging around mm-hmm. to try to have it both ways. Yeah. And, yeah. and that is the mistake here. 
Um, and and James is right. There are consequences to free speech. Mm-hmm. And, right. and, when, and if you accept that we all can speak our minds in this country, you also have to expect sometimes you're not going to like the consequences, and that's what the NBA has not done. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, the NBA can either have a commitment to free speech or guaranteed access to the Chinese market. That's right. Choose, boys. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, the last item that I want to bring up, and, it, and I guess it, it, it hits a little uh, close to those of us who've interacted with our national government, uh, but uh, Harry Dunn and diplomatic immunity. Mm-hmm. So here you have uh, a woman, Ann Sekoulis, or Sekoulis, I guess, uh, claims diplomatic immunity, an American. Uh, her husband is actually uh, a, a U.S. diplomat. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she runs over a 19-year-old young man, man by the yeah. name of Harry Dunn. Um, uh, he dies. Um, and, uh, you know, initially both our government and her were claiming diplomatic immunity. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of justice, the question in my mind is, should the U.S. government um, revisit how it employs mm-hmm. diplomatic immunity mm-hmm. all over the world. Uh, it, you know, I, I get it. I get the reason why you mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, where both governments wit- witness and approve of mm-hmm. diplomatic immunity, especially when like an ambassador is involved or whatever. But in this particular case, mm-hmm. the wife of a diplomat and not even the wife of the ambassador, and it has nothing to do with the relationship between the, the diplomatic UK mission, and the yeah. United States. Yeah. Uh, somehow, some way, I think this is uh, a case where uh, the rule is actually getting in the way of what's the right thing to do. Yeah. You know, a couple of weeks ago here at BU, I had in my class uh, Michelle Gaida, who's mm-hmm. the undersecretary for public affairs um, as secretary of state in yeah. the secretary of state's office. And I just wonder... In knowing Michelle, and, and I haven't spoken to her about this, how she, what advice she would give yeah. in a situation like this. And certainly if it were me, um, the point ha- would, I would segregate this from diplomatic mission, yeah. right? And maybe I've watched too many movies, thrillers, where this happens also in the United States where some yeah. diplomat here and you read about it occasionally and that kind of thing. Uh, I think personal responsibility and living up to, again, values. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, it sounds like uh, that uh, that person should face whatever consequences are due them. Yeah. I, I don't know all the particulars of what happened yeah. in the accident, but certainly... Um, well, you'd like the, to, the, and you'd like to think that as, given the beliefs of our own country... Yeah, exactly. You know, ...that we wouldn't be out there sort of using this and, and, and then kind of acting like the ugly American exactly. in the process. Exactly. Uh, anyway, we've got a great show. Yes, with and, a great guest. Yeah. And, and look forward to talking to, to Alex. Welcome to The Crux. Uh, our guest today uh, on The Crux is a widely respected leader and a, and a good friend of mine. Alex Dmitriev is a man who has worn many hats in his career, and all of them well. Alex has been a CEO, director, general counsel, and a trial trial lawyer. 
And today you're oh, he, he's here with us in the studio. Alex is a lecturer at Harvard Law. Yeah, that, that, that's my latest endeavor, Gary. Yeah, all and right. I, and by the way, thanks for having me. It's yeah, it's terrific. Um, I, I just want to fill in Alex's background because it really is amazing. Uh, spent more than a decade with GE, working uh, with me at the time, and this included being the CEO of GE outside the United States, so leading mm. all of our growth efforts and our teams in about 180 countries. And imagine that complexity from a regulatory, commercial, social, political, however you want to take a look at it. Uh, he also was GE's general counsel, and before that, general counsel at GE Capital during a period which I describe as I'm using air quotes now, sporty uh, in the company. Um, and you're going to hear in a few seconds um, that Alex is really a compelling communicator, a skill he honed during 20 years as a trial lawyer at Kirkland and Ellis. And yes, Alex is Yale undergraduate and Harvard and all of that. But I have to say, uh, one of the reasons I love Alex is he's one of the most plain spoken refreshing thinkers I know when it comes to communications and politics, and we're going to talk about both. Um, we're going to talk a little bit uh, as well about corporate purpose, a few things going on in Washington, employee activism. So again, with all of that, welcome to the crux, Alex. Thanks, and, Gary. And Great. thanks particularly for being here in the studio. So thanks for you, having me. You have a very interesting background, personally and professionally. First generation American, uh, and yet you ended up in the Reagan White House um, uh, as a White House fellow in the Reagan administration. So could you just tell us your story and how it shaped who you are today? Sure, Gary. You know, it really begins with what you identified, which is being a first-generation American. It begins with my parents. Uh, my parents were Russian. They came to the United States for me without knowing a single word of English. And I watched my parents grow up struggling to communicate in what was their fifth language each, and they always spoke Russian with a heavy accent. But I watched my mom and dad struggle and persevere through day-to-day -day life and have them encounter challenges and deal with being an outsider um, in a way that required a determination, a courage, a work ethic. And my mom and dad really gave me that work ethic. Yeah. And it was about working just a little bit harder and always <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. putting in that extra yes. effort that you needed to overcome the barriers of being an outsider. Right. So I grew up, my mom and dad didn't have connections, they weren't wired, they didn't know politicians, they didn't know people. I grew up believing in meritocracy. Right. So I started working hard in high school. I fully intended to grow up going to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, <laughs> my hometown, yeah. until a high school counselor called my parents one day and said, you know, I think your kid may have the Ivy Leagues in him and he ought to try for Great. it. And so, that was the beginning of an unexpected turn. I went to Yale. I was surrounded by incredible classmates. Uh, I went and worked in Washington for a year between college and law school, surrounded by incredible people and a mentor, Ed Madigan, who I'll talk about again in oh, yeah. a second. And then I ended up going to law school at Harvard, again, surrounded by incredible classmates who are in the headlines today, including Adam Schiff. Uh, oh, wow. And, and then I did the unexpected after law school, which is I went for a White House fellowship because I was interested in government. I was interested in public policy. Most people at Harvard thought I had a hole in my head for not doing the conventional <laughs> clerkship route. But again, 
based on what my parents said, you go for what yeah, seems sure. Right. You go for what seems interesting. So I had a year in, uh, as a White House fellow working for Mitch Daniels, who went on to become yeah. the governor of That's right. Indiana. Yeah. He's now doing incredible things as the president of Purdue. Uh, that was an eye-opening year where I got to work in the Reagan administration, and I got to work on the Republican Senate campaigns in 1986 and a variety of public policy issues. And then just when I thought I was set to spend the rest of my career going in and out of government in Washington, I went to Kirkland and Ellis in Chicago because I was convinced that was the best place for me to become a trial lawyer. And I always believed in debate. I believed in the power of ideas. So there I was. Right. I went there for 20 years. I did pretty much every kind of case except criminal cases, although some of the SEC enforcement actions I did felt like criminal right. cases. Right. Uh, now, you did a big case there, too. What, which was I, did, the I defended uh, Mary Meeker and Morgan Stanley. In oh. the That's research, it. That's research, right. Yes. Conflict investigations. Uh-huh. I also did the United Airlines bankruptcy, and I had a number of bet the company cases that I'm really proud to have been involved in. Kirkland and Ellis is a great institution. I loved being there. I thought I'd spend the rest of my career there. And then, lo and behold, in 2007, GE came calling. Uh-huh. And again, I did the unexpected. And, and friends looked at me and they said, you got a great practice. you got a great career. You're settled in Chicago. Why would you go to GE? Right. A chance to do something exciting for a new institution with an incredible culture and an incredible legacy. So my kids and my wife and I packed up, moved to <laughs> Connecticut. I was a GE for 10 years or 11 years in the legal staff. I ended up being general counsel where I worked yep. with you, Gary. And then... Again, following this path of unexpected in 2017, just when everybody thought that I'd gotten the general counsel job that I aspired to my whole career, I raised my hand to become the CEO of General of GE's global growth organization because uh-huh. I saw an opportunity to be the representative of GE around the world. And what I'll say is in some ways yeah. I came full circle yeah. because I grew up as a son of immigrants in the United States who spoke English as a fifth language, and I ended my career as a CEO of an international team of incredible women and men who worked around the world who all spoke English as a third, fourth, or fifth language. The talent and the determination and the zeal with which that team brought the power of GE to bear on issues in their country was really inspiring. What a great opportunity for me. So I guess... You work hard, you try hard, you aren't scared to take unconventional paths. That's what my parents taught me, and I hope they're proud of me. Yeah, I'm sure they are. Yeah. I'm sure they well, are. Well, and you mentioned Ed Madigan being an influence. Talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So Ed Madigan was a uh, was what no longer exists, which is a moderate Republican congressman who actually <laughs> got together. Uh, Oxymoron uh, hey, these days. And right? I'm very yeah. familiar with him. His daughter used to work with me. Yeah, so, yeah. so, and, and Ed was an incredibly thoughtful, distinguished member of Congress yep. who was as plain spoken, as modest as they come. But there's a story that every communicator could take away from my work for Ed Madigan. When I was working there uh, that year between college and law school, I was given an assignment to draft a press release about some legislation that the Democrats, who controlled the House at that time, had passed. And I put together what I thought (laughs) was a great zinger. And it was language in which I had Ed criticizing the Democrats as born-again budgeteers. (laughs) And I'll never forget how devastated I was when I got back the draft with a huge red X through the whole thing, <laughs> and Ed scrawled at the top, I don't do cute, 
and I don't do disrespectful. Right. There you go. And wow. I always think of that note from yeah. Ed, which infuriated me at the time. Oh, sure. Uh-huh. It took me about two hours to realize that he was 100% right. And I learned an important lesson from that exchange that I took with me the rest of my career whenever I wrote anything. But the idea that anyone in Washington right now with the circus atmosphere that's going on oh, yeah. would tone things down to be more right. respectful and, and less contentious and less yeah. cute is a little mind-boggling yeah. right now. Yeah. So that's why I look back on Ed Madigan and I look at the responsible type of, of compromise and middle ground that he sought and a respect for the other side's ideas that just is all too absent from Washington right now. We could yeah. use a whole lot more people like Ed Madigan. He was a great yeah, here, leader here. and a great influence yeah. on me early boy, in my career. Boy, those handwritten notes that are oh. direct <laughs> and clear, yeah. boy, they stick with you. I, I had one from Jack Welch once that said, Gary, this is the dumbest effing and he didn't say effing idea we've ever had <laughs> but you know, and that sticks and he was right and he was right <laughs> that's the thing gary you know when you look back at your career and you look back at the feedback you've gotten some of the harshest most demoralizing criticism that you got yeah. actually teaches you the biggest lessons it, absolutely and, yeah. and it leads me to one of the things i always say about people who were in supervisory positions in government and in law firms and companies, which is you owe people honest feedback. Right. Now, you don't need to give it quite as candidly and frankly <laughs> yeah. as Jack did, yeah. but I think it's important. And, and the fact that you and I still remember that feedback and it shaped how, how exactly. we do today is pretty important. Is exactly. Yeah. Well, reflecting also on Madigan's, uh, you know, Betray uh, sort of discussion with you around you know that this is maybe too cute and clever. I reflect on the uh, the op-ed that you recently wrote about the business roundtable and uh, its decision to issue a new statement on the purpose of a corporation, uh, which appeared in uh, in Law 360. Was that too cute and clever? Well, I thought it was a little bit of a somewhat of a cynical exercise in public relations, to be honest Mm -hmm. with you. And ultimately, I was disappointed in the approach that the Business Roundtable took. Uh, I believe that corporate purpose is an incredibly important topic. And I subscribe to the notion that a corporation has to stand for a broader purpose. I think GE did. Mm -hmm. I think that pretty much every great company has. And that's the point. Mm-hmm. It's not a news flash in 2019 that corporations have to look out for all stakeholders. And I think that if you look at the history of great corporations in the United States and great businesses around the world, they've always looked out for stakeholders. Sure. I mean, can you can you imagine a world where stakeholders don't matter? I mean, <laughs> no, how, no, how can silly. you... How can you succeed if you don't look out for customers, employees, suppliers, communities, regulators, and governments? And investments in these stakeholders may hit the expense side of the ledger, but when they're done right, they ultimately create value for the benefit of shareholders. And I think that what really bothered me about the statement is it seemed to create this idea of a newsflash that 
most successful companies enjoy sustained financial success because they serve broader purposes that are valued by their <laughs> yeah, stakeholders. Yeah. That's so, not new. So, so, exactly. so, Alex, do you think they were trying to do maybe something else? Because but the, the cynical side of me says, oh, what happened a week or two after? Oh, you had the publishing of, you know, the new pay ratio uh, requirements to the SEC. Uh, you also have a lot of economists and people walk, watching what's happening in the street thinking, you know, we may have reached the end of this little boomlet. And as a consequence, you know, a lot of these CEOs might be running for cover, especially as they look at what might happen in 2020 and maybe a little fearful of, you know, President Warren. Yeah, I, I don't know if they're running for cover so much as they are trying to instill a line of defense yeah. against some of the criticisms that are definitely going to be coming their way. I, I, I really think that when you boil down this revised statement of corporate purpose, they're really addressing two issues. One is they are trying to defang some of the more aggressive initiatives that Senator mm -hmm. Warren and others are advancing about mm -hmm. corporations. Yeah. And I think they are trying to alleviate any doubts among skeptics that the CEOs get it and that mm -hmm. they understand that corporations have to serve a broader purpose and the consequences for stakeholders matter. So I do think there's some political protection mm -hmm. that is being sought yeah. by virtue of the statement. I don't think it's worked. Yeah. I, I actually mm -hmm. think that it's so vague and so fluffy that what's going to happen now is that Senator Warren has already begun to ask for the details on how they're going to implement this new paradigm <laughs> yes. that's less uh, profit-driven, and yeah. that will be an interesting yeah. step. Show me, don't tell me. Exactly. But, but I think the more fundamental point that the BRT was trying to address and something that they've been trying to address for years are the dangers of short-termism. Short yes. yeah. And really this idea that boards and management teams owe it to shareholders and stakeholders not to sacrifice research and development, investment employees, investment in the long-term sustainability of a corporation in return for a good number in the next quarter to satisfy an activist investor who has a one-year uh, investment horizon. And and the fundamental point of the op-ed I wrote is that if that's what you're talking about, then say it. Yeah, right. Because it, it, I think people would be very exactly. sympathetic to that notion. I think that for a long time, the main issue has been whether short-termism is impeding long-term value creation. That's a very serious issue. I think Absolutely. companies face trade-offs between research and development and long-term investments in facilities and communities. They face these issues every month. Right. And I think that a candid, transparent discussion about that as opposed to hiding behind Is much them, needed, then, yeah. Then this idea of stakeholder corporate governments is really beside the point. Yeah. Because honestly, good companies have been doing that for decades. For a long time. And here's the other rub. And I don't make a lot of friends in the business community when I say this, but nothing has been stopping these CEOs from exercising stakeholder corporate governance for Absolutely. the last years. Absolutely nothing. So yeah. they need to lead by example. And we've seen good players for a long time. Yeah. And we've seen good players and we've seen bad players. And mm -hmm. I think that good students of business look at successes and failures and they figure out that in the end, Looking out for all stakeholders is ultimately the way for shareholders to benefit. Right. That's right. So along these lines, as we tape this, Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of Salesforce.com, has a new book out. It's called Trailblazer, The Power of Business as the Greatest Platform for Change. I, I, I 
tend to agree with him on that because I've seen it. And in the book, uh, Benioff says, wh- whose company, by the way, is a juggernaut, right? Yeah, I mean, right. And, and maybe uniquely positioned to be able to say these kinds of things. I would say that capitalism as we know it is dead and that businesses have to move to a new capitalism, a more equal, fair, and sustainable way of doing business, one that values all stakeholders as well as shareholders, right? Uh, So pretty much mirroring what the BRT said. But he, what I thought was interesting, Alex, is he goes on to advise um, technology companies particularly that they have to go public. He calls it a cleansing. When you start to <laughs> apply things like Sarbanes-Oxley, SEC regulations, governance, quarterly board earnings, investor statements, earnings calls, it's a cleansing and it's very uh, healthy. And a lot of companies stay private too long. Do you think that kind of regulatory scrutiny is um, as beneficial as Benioff seems to think it is for a lot of these startups that we see today? Well, first first of all, in response to the threshold statement, I it brings to mind Mark Twain's favorite admonition that the reports of his, de- his death have been <laughs> And I don't think capitalism's dead. I think capitalism will continue to evolve in the years ahead. And yeah. I think we go through cycles, and I think that smart companies, again, will find the right balance between maximizing profit and optimizing profit. Right. And that companies that optimize profit do it in ways that benefit stakeholders who count on that company for more than just profitability. And I think that's ultimately the path to success. In terms of the regulations and in terms of going public being a cleansing function or being a transparency yeah. function, again, I think that a company has its culture. Mm-hmm. And that the leadership sets a culture of the company. Right. And I don't think it matters whether the company is privately held or publicly held. You, you're either committed to doing the right thing in a good and transparent way or you're not. Right. And I actually think that this notion that going public will save companies from themselves is a little bit of an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Because most people who take companies private after they've gone public say that the constraints of quarterly reporting – and that the constraints of periodic quarterly updates on initiatives that are meant to be five-year or 10-year investment horizons handicap yeah. the company right. and impede its ability to do the right thing and make long, sound long-term investments. Right, right. So I, again, think it's a little overkill. Yeah. And yeah. it's a little well, extreme it, to say that you have to go public in order to cleanse the, yeah. uh, to cleanse the Well, and if you look at recent ex- recent examples, WeWork, Uber, some companies that uh, were private, and I don't think from an integrity and culture standpoint it really mattered whether they were public or private. Yeah. There was leadership issues at both of those places that fed a culture that was um, – Weak yeah. and bad, yeah. uh, let's say. Yeah. Well, that's why I think Alex's point about, you know, the companies really, have, if they want to be sustainable and they want to grow, they've got to be looking all along at what is the impact of this company on a broader array of stakeholders. Uh, you know, we all used to talk about license to operate. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I, I guess I would be interested in Alex in terms of if. If a group of leaders is getting together today to form a new company, uh, what would be your recommendation to them around, you know, what kind of, of 
purpose should they be upholding as, you know, the purpose for where they need to be and how do they interact with stakeholders? What's the difference that your company is going to make for people? And Mm -hmm. there's no one size that fits all. So at GE, our purpose was bringing science and technology to bear on the world's problems and helping our customers make the world a better place through new healthcare technologies, through new energy technologies, and through new aviation technologies. It sounds cheesy, but our products really did move, cure, transport the world. Mm-hmm. And so that purpose is what motivated people at GE. Mm-hmm. Very much. Yeah, we'd like to have had a higher stock price. Yes, we enjoyed earning profits. But when you ask people why they and their families were proud that they worked at GE, it's because of the difference we were making throughout the world mm-hmm. in bringing products to areas that had never had them before. That purpose is what motivated people. And I think that if you look at great companies, you can see that – that broader purpose, how you make a difference for people, mm-hmm. and as a result succeed commercially, is the recipe for success. So I always say, when people ask me the difference between working for a law firm and working for a company, I say that the danger for law firms is that they don't have a noble mission mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Companies have a broader, the good companies yeah. have a broader purpose where they are making a difference for people. And a mission statement for a law firm would go something like this. We are going to make a lot of money by helping our clients win whenever possible. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not really inspirational. Right, right. right. And that's why I think you're seeing more and more people go from law firms to corporations in-house where most of the action is right now because there's a broader purpose. Now, I'm painting with too broad a brush. There are sure. noble things that law firms do, and sure. there are law firms that are committed to making difference in the, is differences sure. in their communities yeah. by providing legal representation for people who don't have it. So I'm exaggerating to make a point. Mm-hmm. But again, I think that a successful company has a broader purpose, and serving that broader purpose in smart ways enables them to be profitable and commercially successful. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to work in that order of priority the great companies have already been doing this, and they don't need a statement or permission from the business roundtable to behave that way. Well, you know, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna chime in here on GE since you and I both gave blood, sweat, and tears to that company. And today, GE is viewed in many ways as uh, a failure, right? As a business failure. Um, bec- they have some problems. They have balance sheet problems, no doubt. They have uh, some debt issues that they need to they need to fix at the same time uh, every one of the businesses that GE is in comp- still to this day fulfills the promise that they made about its per- their purposes which is you know mm-hmm. cure mm-hmm. move transport however you want to power um, just great businesses that have opened up new opportunities to people around the world now from a and I'm going to whine a little bit about the media from a media standpoint, the ones that we pay attention to, the business media particularly, um, that part of the story is really hard to find, right? That the company as a whole is still living that purpose in a good um, in a good way. So I, I don't know if I have a question for you, Alex, <laughs> no, but, but or it's again, this is maybe just soapbox talk. 
No, Gary, I think you've raised a very good point, and I'll tell you that one of the things that struck me when I was the CEO of the Global Growth Organization in 2018, when I traveled around the world, is how different the views were towards GE than back in the United States. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And when I'd ask employees for advice, what should I be taking back to Boston to tell John Flannery (laughs) or Larry Culp or others about GE, they'd say, hey, believe in ourselves. We don't know why everybody's so down on GE back in the United States, but we believe in GE here in China. We believe in GE here in Saudi Arabia and South Africa and Russia and elsewhere around the world. So this disconnect between the reality and the rest of the world, between how customers and governments were viewing GE and the disdain with which GE was viewed back home in the financial press was really striking. Uh, the story for GE breaks my heart, obviously, mm-hmm. Gary. Right. There are a lot of people who have been adversely affected by the deterioration in GE's stock price. Uh, and that's something. And that, that has that, impact on a lot of people. It has a tremendous impact on a lot of people. And it's something that, you know, as a member of the senior management team, always causes me to look back and ask what I could have done differently and what I could have done better. And I think about that quite a bit. Uh, and I think everybody who was in senior management at the time mm-hmm. is is feels the same way. Feels yeah, the same completely. way, and is and has a lot of regret about how things turned out. But I believe that to this day, betting against women and men at GE is something that someone does at their own peril. Yeah, they are great businesses. They are unbelievable technologies. The company continues to invest in next generation developments that I think are going to make a huge difference around the world. The jet engine business is world class. The healthcare business is world class. The renewables exactly. business is world class. Just introduced the largest offshore wind turbine that there is in the history of the in world, the world yeah. and it's been a huge success so far. And the power business, once it gets back on its feet and gets right sized and gets back to where it needs to be to address changes in electricity demand, is also going to be world class. So. I like the future for GE. I wish it would happen more quickly than it appears <laughs> that it's going to. But uh, I continue to be really proud of what we tried to accomplish, what we did accomplish. And I believe that there was nothing but the best of intentions and and pure hearts as we went forward. Well, well the story remains to be told. I yeah, think. I think so. And, and the only thing I figured out my point, Mike, which is <laughs> I want to pick a fight with the financial media, with the business media, which I respect greatly. There's nobody that laments short-termism mm-hmm. more than the business media, the yeah. columnists, the editorialists, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, largely, that stock price from quarter to quarter is the only metric they use to measure the effectiveness of a CEO or a leadership team or a company. Well, it creates a focal point, that's for certain. Yeah. Um, well, don't, you know, I mean, Gary, we have to admit, a lot of the criticism about GE when you look at how the results turn out is not unfair. No, well, uh, I'm not. You know, but, uh, but there's balance to, yeah, exactly, to be had, exactly. right? And, and I think that what bothers me when I read the press about GE today is they portray it as the gang who couldn't shoot straight for 30 right. years. And that's not a fair characterization of yeah, anything yeah. that happened at GE. Right. So and, I feel and, better now, Mike. Okay, good, <laughs> good, good, good. But, but, but I think it does come with sort of looking at things in a void as opposed to realizing the dynamic you know, marketplace that you were operating in over those 30 years as well. Totally. Um, I'm going to change gears here a little bit. 
in the sense, you know, early on in your career, uh, you you interacted in kind of the world of politics, then you get into business. You've never shied away from issues. And uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting today is I think the climate, given what it is in Washington, where people are ranting and raving and, and, and whatnot, that sometimes business leaders are uh, a little uh, hesitant to get engaged in issues. But You've been one to engage in issues. Talk a little bit about your your interest in the immigration issue. Sure. Well, you know, I, I, I write about immigration. I write about freedom of speech. I write about integrity and other issues that are important to me because I believe a platform is a terrible thing to waste. Right. <laughs> and uh, you earn a certain amount of credibility on issues when you get to a position like being the general counsel of GE. Mm-hmm. And so... I have always believed that as long as I exercise the privileges that come with that position responsibly, I'm entitled to address issues that matter. Mm-hmm. And as the general counsel... And I would add, I think it's important for leaders in such positions to do that. Well, mm-hmm. sure. I, and I was going to get to that point, which is I think you have a right to do that. And quite honestly, with the way things are going right now and with all the toxic communications that are happening on so many of these issues, I think it's important for business leaders who have credibility on these issues and aren't quite as interested in getting votes but are more interested in trying to get to the right answer Mm -hmm. to speak up Mm -hmm. on some of these issues. I do think there has to be a nexus between the issue and what the business is about. So I think that's a natural... Uh, segue into discussions on diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. on immigration. Uh, and, and I felt strongly about immigration as the CEO of the Global Growth Organization because my view was that anyone who worked for GE ought to be able to visit our headquarters in Boston. Yeah. And the immigration restrictions and the immigration bashing really bothered me because I think it was unfair to people mm-hmm. who Absolutely. were incredibly committed to our company who believed in GE and who believed in the United States. And I thought it was very short-sighted. And so it was in GE's interest, and I believe in everyone's interest, for people who are aware of that issue the way that I am by virtue of having had immigrants Mm -hmm. as parents to speak up and stand up for what is right. Mm -hmm. I believe the same thing about diversity inclusion. I believe the same thing about other controversial topics. I do believe that business leaders are going to have to pick their spots I think it's I think you have to be mindful of bandwidth and I yeah. think you have to be mindful of appropriate focus but what leaders have to say on these issues matters mm-hmm. yeah uh, and I think it would be a shame for some of the most talented people in our country not to speak up when they're needed the most and you know along those lines Alex you you gave the commencement address graduation speaker at the New York Law School in 2018. And and there, you told the graduates to be authentic, civil, and to strive to be an authoritative source of truth in rooms that might be crowded with people trying to force their own agendas. So I was really interested in that. And why, to a group of future lawyers, uh, emphasize civility and authenticity. Those two words particularly stuck out to me. Okay, so not for the reasons that most people would think. I, yeah, think, yeah. I think most people would say the lawyers don't have a whole lot of civility, the lawyers <laughs> don't have a whole lot of authenticity, <laughs> and that I was warning them not to fit the stereotype. And yep. actually, the message was quite, to the, quite the opposite. I believe that 
the legal profession is a noble one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I believe that lawyers who do it right are taught to think like lawyers. You know, apologies for the cliches from Paper yeah. Chase and the, yeah, yeah. Profe- and the famous Professor Kingsfield yeah. character. But there is something to being taught to think like a lawyer because thinking like a lawyer means letting both sides have their say. It mm-hmm. means respecting the power of ideas. It means making sure that both sides are considered fairly and that everyone has a fair chance to state their case. And that t- that training has come in handy for me at virtually every phase of my <laughs> career in legal contexts, but also in all other contexts. Right. Gary, when I was the secretary of GE's board, uh, being trained to think like a lawyer trained me to make sure that both sides of issues were presented fairly to the board, mm-hmm. that everybody had a chance to interesting. To, state their case and to state it in a respectful way. And so my plea to those graduates and my plea to every law school class that I speak to is to put that training to good use because it's needed now more than ever. I don't think it's a coincidence that the number of lawyers in the United States Congress is at a historic low. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I think that that is not an act. I don't think that. The and, so, what do you mean by that? Why do you think that's the case? Uh, because I think that, unfortunately, I think that serving in Congress has become a more contentious, mm-hmm. less noble profession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that people who were drawn to it before, leaders in business, leaders in law firms, elsewhere, aren't drawn to it in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you instead have a tendency to have more polarizing people uh, seek office, uh, people who don't have uh, the citizen statesman mm-hmm. model yep. in mind. Yep. Uh, and, I, yeah. and I think that's why you don't have as many lawyers mm-hmm. uh, going to Congress anymore. Interesting. And I think, that the, I think that there is a correlation between the diminution in the number of lawyers and the quality of the debate. It's happening in Washington, in Washington right now. Interesting. Yeah. So, so you were a speaker as part of a panel at uh, the Arthur W. Page Society's annual conference, and and, and Gary actually you ran that yep. panel, and and what was interesting to me, uh, as as an observer and as a, a former chief communications officer, uh, oftentimes lawyers get the rap or general counsels get the rap as 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 you know that's that's the no office. You know, if, if you want to get, you know, a statement about, you know, whether we should put a statement out, it's the lawyers that are going to tell you no. Mm-hmm. And it's the lawyers that are going to say, you know, we, we, really, we really shouldn't stake a position out. And yet you were very candid about invoking privilege in that discussion. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was uh, refreshing. Uh, thankfully, I've worked with lawyers who had similar opinions to your own. Um, but I know that there is a frustration amongst a lot of chief communications officers that all too often, uh, if there is a lawsuit, if there is something that's contentious, uh, that the response that lawyers want media relations people to give is no comment. Could you comment a little bit on why you don't see that or you see that differently maybe than other general counsels? I think that's an incredibly self-defeating approach towards complicated issues that people want to understand. So right now and today there was a front page article about Johnson & Johnson Mm -hmm. and the legal troubles that they're facing. 
Uh, and the idea that Johnson & Johnson doesn't owe it to its stakeholders to explain why it's approaching those lawsuits in the way that they are and why they think they're right is a non Mm-hmm. Is a non-starter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, and and again, I I think this the standard pat answer that a lot of companies used to give, which is we don't discuss matters that are under litigation, doesn't make sense because if you're in a courtroom, or you're before an enforcement agency and you're defending the company and you have a case and you, you have, have to stake out the to, position, and you have yeah. themes to that case. Why wouldn't you share them with the rest of the world? Right, the hard work's already been done. You have a position. Uh, explain it. And defend yourself. And, and I really think that when you take the easy way out of no comment, you are doing a huge disservice to the stakeholders in your company. You're not defending the women and men in your company. You're not defending your mm-hmm. products. You're not defending the way that you do business. So to me, I just think no comment is the coward's way out, and it's the easy way easy. out. Uh, I actually will throw one back at you because I think a lot of lawyers do rightfully have the reputation of being the office of no, Mm -hmm. but I've also met a lot of (laughs) communicators over the course of my career who are disappointed when I say, oh no, we're going to say something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and they're thinking, oh, God, i got to sit here with this guy now for the next yeah. three hours and come up with what we're going to say. I thought yeah. I was going to be able to say no. I thought I was off the hook. And, yeah. and go on to something else. And, and, I think you know, you're right about and that. It's, and it's honest. And it's yeah. really something, right? Business executives who have a chief communications officer and a general counsel, they often want to take the easy way out and say, hey, can't we just say no comment? This thing's in litigation. Right. Yeah. And I think that the partnership between the lawyers and the communications team to come up with a responsible, factual, authentic, honest statement. It's hard work, but it's good work. It's the best thing you can do. Absolutely. And I think you're, you know, the the idea that you fight for your reputation at every opportunity, you know, when you think you're right. And I, I had to, you know, you can tell I had Alex and before him Brackett Denniston both who had some political background. Yeah. And I think uh, working with lawyers who have been in the mosh pit of politics mm-hmm. and understand that uh, on a, you only get a couple chances to stand up for yourself and you should take those opportunities, I think is... So I was blessed. I, I, I found, and again, this is my own experience, working with lawyers who had not had that sort of political lens on things they were more likely to say no comment. Let's just Gary, let's let's not create any risk by saying something. We're going to we're going to have make our arguments in the courtroom. So I, look, I think you're right and I'll acknowledge that a lot of lawyers are tone deaf when it comes yeah. to that. Mm-hmm. I think the other issue that everyone ought to be careful of, especially the professionals who would be interested in the, in yeah. the type mm-hmm. of podcast we're doing today is the importance of not exaggerating, of being truthful, of being yeah. authentic, of being accurate. The worst thing you can do is tell one side of the story or the worst thing you yeah. can do is, you know, overstate or exaggerate something. Exactly. Uh, again, I think that the when lawyers and communicators work the best in partnership, it's when they stress test each other, when they give smell tests to what each other <laughs> are saying. Yeah, uh, I agree. And you end up with something that ends up being the right thing. And, yeah. you know, and I think honesty always pays off. Yeah. I love your phrase. I call bullshit on that. That was always inspiring to me. <laughs> and, you know. So, well, you know, Gary, it's honestly, it's this issue of, of privilege, and, and it's the most misunderstood thing. So 
privilege is meant to preserve the confidentiality of communications among those at a company who need to make and execute decisions involving illegal advice. It's not meant as a tool by which lawyers or anyone else can limit those discussions to the privileged few. Right. Uh, you need stakeholders to participate mm-hmm. in that discussion. And I just find this instinct to narrow the people who are in the room when you're discussing something that important to be so counterproductive. And to me, the benefit that lawyers get from having communications experts stress test the message and just give it the smell test Mm -hmm. about whether it's credible and whether it sounds right and whether it comports with what they've seen at the company is such a huge advantage. Why in the world wouldn't you take advantage of it? Exactly. And to be honest with you, if there are people in the room who you don't trust Mm -hmm. to the extent where you're going to invoke this abstract concept of a a privilege, Privilege, then you got the wrong people in the room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Privilege isn't your problem. It's the people. It's the people. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and again, along these lines. So there's the old saying, you know, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. And it seems like some really great companies. We mentioned J&J, Alex, uh, some of the problems it's having in courtrooms, convincing people about its the safety of its products. Boeing, of course, with the 737 MAX. VW with the diesel emissions scandal. And Facebook for a variety of things, including data leaks. Um, they can't seem to get out of some of the holes they've dug for themselves. And you and I worked on a a very difficult crisis, uh, the nuclear crisis in Fukushima in Japan after the earthquake and tsunami and what amounted to a nuclear meltdown um, there. So put your business leader, your CEO hat on now. What is the most important thing a company can do when faced with one of these really tough, difficult crises? Um, What advice would you give to communicators and uh, uh, business leaders out there listening about that situation? I'd actually say three things, Gary. The first is recognize that you're in trouble and that you have a crisis on your doorstep. Mm -hmm. The second is make sure you have the right people in the room who can provide perspective and speak truth to Mm -hmm. the CEO or the CFO or whoever's in charge of managing Mm -hmm. that crisis. And the third is own up to what has not gone right. Mm -hmm. When I watch, and I don't mean disrespect to Facebook and some of the other companies that are in these crises, but when I watch some of the things they're saying in response to the regulatory (laughs) scrutiny and the criticism that they're getting on Capitol Hill and elsewhere, I'm reminded of the Kevin Baker character at the end of Animal House. (laughs) who steps there in the midst of this calamity and says, all is well, all is well. <laughs> and I really think Great that, movie. Yeah. that the, uh, and there's something in Animal House for every single <laughs> person, <laughs> by the way. But that and the Godfather. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, part of the issue with the technology companies right now is a failure to own up to the fact that they've made some mistakes. Right. And that things haven't gone well. And a failure to acknowledge that, a failure to own up to it, uh, leads to this dribbling out of one more issue and another issue after another issue and a loss of credibility that is the worst thing that could happen to you in a crisis. Um, 
I don't know the facts entirely mm-hmm. around Boeing, yep. but it, mm-hmm. it, and it's easy to criticize with the benefit From of the 20, outside, of yep. 2020 hindsight. But when a company with its reputation says, hey, this is just a minor issue that needs a couple tweaks here mm-hmm. or there, mm-hmm. and here you are five, six, seven months later with regulators saying that they're still concerned about issues, mm-hmm. yeah. you just wonder whether there were people in the room that were able to forcibly state the nature and extent of the problem. Call bullshit. When you and I were working on Fukushima, Gary, one thing we never said was, hey, don't worry, things are <laughs> Exactly, great. right. And right. there were people who, quite honestly, wanted us to say exactly. something like that. Yeah. And I really credit the women and men who are around that table yeah. for being straight about it. Yeah, that's right. And acknowledging yeah. that there were issues, acknowledging that there was uncertainty, and acknowledging that there was some serious heroic work that needed to be done. Well, and this transparency and the, and the candor is something that when you look at unsuccessful crisis management seems to be a theme. Yes. We forget how relatively young the tech companies are, comparative to other companies. Is it a sense of maturation that they haven't gone through yet? In other words, they're sort of approaching middle age in some ways, Facebook and uh, particularly, but also Google and other. They've only been around for a few decades. I I think it's even more simple than that. I, I think they're going through a cycle of a company that is confronting failure for the first time in their history. Interesting. Yeah, they've that's always, a better way to put they it. They have yep. always been the darlings of Wall Street, the darlings of the financial communities, because their touch has been golden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you think of anything Google did wrong for its first five, six years in existence? Mm-hmm. Facebook, mm-hmm. Yahoo. I mean, when these companies came out, they had touches of gold, yeah, and they were and they great were doing point. great things. And now some of the cracks in their business models are starting to show. And this idea of people providing their data in return for the services uh, that the companies provide, ostensibly for free, but there's really a cost in terms of disclosure Disclosure. that people hadn't really appreciated. That's now being debated and questions are being asked for the first time. And quite honestly... I just don't think that the leaders of the technology companies are used to having their integrity questioned. Mm-hmm. And it's a learning process. Right. Uh, it's not a fun one. Yeah. Uh, the companies didn't become bad overnight. I still believe that Google and Facebook and, and the entrepreneurs that are populating all these new companies in Silicon Valley have great noble aspirations, and I, mm-hmm. and I think they're positive. They just need to learn to live with the scrutiny that some it, that of the comes more with conventional metal-bending yeah. companies have had for years and years <laughs> and years. You yeah. know, So mm-hmm. skepticism about our motives is something that we were all too familiar with yes. at GE, and I think that Google and Facebook and Amazon, they'll get there. Yep. I think yeah. they just have to get used to it and, uh, and understand that People are not always going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They need to earn it. That's right. You know, one of the issues that you undoubtedly were both up against with Fukushima uh, had to do with culture um, in the sense of your Japanese counterparts probably were more, Mm -hmm. you know, don't worry, we'll we'll handle this. And we kind of look at there are certain things happening in the news today 
um, where we saw this uh, this Hong Kong app, mm-hmm. you know, with uh, with Apple, where they in- initially rejected uh, putting the app on iTunes, uh, and then they did put it on iTunes. And it, the reason was that the app was showing where the police were. Um, and I think that initially Apple was concerned about uh, how would the government react. And then they decided that they'd go ahead and issue the app anyway. And then they pulled the app back down after there was mm-hmm. criticism uh, in sort of the Chinese uh, news organizations. And, and we've also seen the NBA sort of stub its toe in a way in the last couple of weeks. You know, you had an executive with uh, Houston Rockets uh, go out and, uh, you know, tweet about the need for, you know, freedom in, uh, in Hong Kong. And uh, then first he got rebuffed by the NBA and then the NBA kind of walked it back. Yep. And now the NBA is kind of getting hit on both sides. How did you handle or how would you handle situations that are are not just about the fundamentals of doing things right or wrong, but where cultural norms are different? And particularly as the, the leader of the, the, the growth uh, business at GE, was that ever a challenge? Of course it was. And I think that there were a number of issues where the values that we have as an American company Mm-hmm. were different from those of some of the countries and some of the governments with whom we worked. Uh, I think LGBT rights is a prominent mm-hmm. example where views on that in the United States are very different and in the West are very different from where they are in some countries in the Middle East and some countries in Africa and elsewhere. And so we were fairly assertive and vocal about government policies in the United States and the West where civil disobedience is an expected behavior. Uh, where we have a culture of openly debating issues and of companies and individuals pushing back against government policies with which they disagree, uh, guess what? That isn't the prevailing culture in Saudi Arabia. That's not the prevailing culture in a lot of countries in Africa. And so you have to make a decision about whether you can remain true to your values and how you conduct your own business but have a long-term view about the best way to bring about the kind of change that you believe is warranted. And I think that by staying true to our values um, and uh, being a constructive participant in other parts of the world with values and policies with which we don't disagree is ultimately the best way to bring positive and constructive change consistent with our values to those areas. I can tell you that there are a number of people who pulled me aside at meetings uh, gay and lesbian employees elsewhere in the world who said, I wanted to come work for GE because of Mm -hmm. what you stand for. And those conversations were so heartwarming to me Mm -hmm. and made me so proud of being at GE. And that's just a tiny one-issue example Mm -hmm. of how you navigate these conflicts, I think, thoughtfully Mm -hmm. and compassionately and successfully. It's not easy, uh, you know, and I think that it depends on when, when a company has a right and a duty to speak up that's shaped again by the culture of civil disobedience and the degree to which that is expected and encouraged. Um, I think one of the great things about living in the United States is that we can speak our minds about anything that we want with few repercussions. As you said, the NBA is finding out 
the hard way. Mm-hmm. That that's not necessarily true around the rest of the world. Uh, the latest development from this morning is LeBron James. Uh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> Uh, I think it's rich to hear a basketball player who's made billions of dollars yeah. off of the game criticize someone else for being selfish and not considering <laughs> the respect of others because they supported protesters for freedom and democracy in Hong Kong. Right. That was a rich angle uh, yeah. for, for him to take. But it's yeah. raised very serious issues yeah. about how do you balance long-term success and presence in a country with a overarching policy that you may not agree with against engagement. Right. Uh, And I believe that GE's history teaches that to win, you have to show up and you have to engage. And showing up and engaging means sometimes living in an environment that's not perfect, that doesn't line up completely 100% with your values. There are times when the lineup is so abhorrent as is the case with North Korea, mm-hmm. that you decide you're not going to be there at all. At all, right. yeah. But I think in most cases, there is a way to stay true to your values, to continue to be everyone's company, and yet do businesses in the rest of the world that haven't quite caught up with that notion yet. And I, I'm proud of how we navigated that tension. I'm sure there are instances where if I look back at it, I, I wish we did something somewhat differently. But for the most part, I'm really proud of the differences that we've made in in various parts of the world and and how we brought GE to bear on on a lot of different countries and a lot of different people who wouldn't be as well off if we hadn't been. Yeah. Influence isn't always done through speeches and statements to the press and public. Sometimes influence is applied in other ways and can be quite effective. But, Uh, you know, if if I could get back to another part of your question, too, mm -hmm. which is one of the things that... Gary and I did during Fukushima and that others did, especially uh, Brackett Dennis, yeah. my boss at the time, we wouldn't settle for an answer that was incomplete or unsatisfactory. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's sometimes this rush to kind of just move on or make a decision or not get bogged down in complexities. Sometimes the details matter. Absolutely. Sometimes the complexity matters. I really admired the fact that Brackett, who didn't know anything about a nuclear reactor before (laughs) Fukushima started, would sit there and ask the most basic questions of our nuclear experts and would not settle Mm -hmm. for the answers until he understood the issue. And by the way, everybody else in the room was really glad that he was answering, asking the questions because exactly. none of us knew the answers to these questions either. And that process mm-hmm. ended up getting the team to coalesce around an approach. And so when I look at what happens with the apps in Hong Kong or I look at some of these other issues, I'm willing to bet that there were people who were in the room that weren't satisfied that they'd really gotten good answers to the questions that were raised. And they just said, well, time's up or it's time to move on. And so my advice to people who find themselves in those situations is don't settle for incomplete or mediocre answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, It's not satisfactory. Getting getting it right is important. Is very important. And, and, you know, there's there's a lot of advice to go fast in a crisis. Sometimes that can be the worst thing you can do before you know the full the full answers. Well, uh, Mike has a really tough question for you, Alex, as a closer here. 
And <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so Gary and I are dying as Yankee fans uh, to ask you to comment on your dear St. Louis Cardinals, who I know are up against the wall right now in their uh, in their series with the Washington Nationals. Oh, you just couldn't let that. <laughs> so how, let me ask you this: How did you, from Illinois? I guess it was the. How did you become a Cardinal fan? So some of your younger listeners are not going to be able to comprehend <laughs> this situation. But when I was growing up and playing Little League Baseball, there was no cable TV. There was no Internet. Yeah. And so what you watched on TV was what the networks picked up on Saturday for the game of the week. Right. And the NBC station in Champaign-Urbana carried the Cardinals. The CBS station carried the Cubs. And the local uh, radio station in St. Louis was part of the KMOX, KMOX broadcast yeah. network yeah. in, in St. Louis. Bob Costas was uh, later. Bob Costas, yeah. Harry Carey, Harry Jack Carey. Buck. Yep. And so during my formative years, I had a choice between the Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, Kirk oh, Flood, Orlando what a great team. Cardinals, or the Cubs. Yeah. Uh, my mom and dad were Cubs fans. Yeah. My mom and dad were Cubs fans. I was a Cardinals fan. I came out way ahead on that. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and I've become a more serious baseball fan as time has gone on because I believe, I think the Cardinals are a great organization, and I've just loved watching, and I think baseball's a great game. Yes. And I think there's something about not being on a clock yeah. and having to get 27 outs that makes it a fascinating game. And uh, so I'm a diehard Cardinals fan. I'm in suffering mode right now. <laughs> it's, been, it's been tough to watch. Uh, it's been a great season. I'm proud of them for having gotten to the NLCS when people thought they wouldn't. But their performance here has left a little bit to be wanted. Uh, I guess well. we owe, as Cardinals Nation, we owe an apology to the Yankees because we're letting the Nationals line up their pitching staff pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we still got to get through the Astros. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have become a little bit of a Yankees fan as my, t- uh, my time in New England again, and, and I'll attribute it to the same thing I became a Cardinals fan to. I listen to WCBS. Uh, right. There you go. So the Yankees games are on. I drive Jill, my wife, crazy by putting him on, but I've become a little bit of a— John Sterling, a, the play-by-play guy, will do that to anybody. Uh, yeah. I, but I, I, but I have to admit, I've become a little bit of a Yankees fan in the process, and uh, I sure would love to see them get back into the World Series. That would be yeah. fun. So good luck to you guys. And, uh, I, I oh, wish my you. team— uh, was was helping uh, helping soften up the Nationals a little bit better than they are. Well, you can see why um, Alex Dmitriev is you know one of the best thinkers, communicators in business, I think. And um, it's been great fun to work with you um, back in our days uh, at GE. Hey, and Gary, I, the privilege has been all mine. Oh, terrific, terrific! And thank you for being on the Crux. As a parting gift, by the way. We do have a very stylish The Crux t-shirt for you that we'll present to you later. But again, thanks, Alex, for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.